Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. A lot of art is made to be ephemeral. Dance, music, theater. Parade floats, flower arrangements. But accidentally or on purpose, with the artist's approval or without, most art and architecture eventually disappear. In this episode, some of the whys and wherefores behind the destruction of art. There are two ways of dealing with the art of a conquered people. You either take it for yourself, or you destroy it. When you take it for yourself, we call it spolia, which is a fancy name for loot. The Romans did this all the time. It's why there's so much Greek stuff in Italy. Napoleon and Hitler did it too, which is why there's so much Greek and Roman and Egyptian and Sumerian stuff in Paris and Berlin. The English and the Americans were a little late to the party, but the British Museum now has its share, and you can walk through all the museums on the Mall in Washington, D.C., or go to New York and see what the Americans got. But what do you do with art that makes you uncomfortable? One of the most famous controversies about whether or not certain kinds of art should even exist happened in what was left of the Roman Empire during the 6th and 7th centuries and even into the 8th. The argument was about icons, those portrait-like depictions of Christian saints and apostles and, of course, Jesus Christ and the Virgin Mary. On the one side, you had people who believed that these sacred images are valuable aids for belief and devotion, whether or not they believe in the miraculous powers often attributed to icons. These folks were, and are, called iconophiles, which means, big surprise, lovers of the image. On the other side of the coin were the iconoclasts, people who opposed the use and display of icons or anything remotely similar to them. Iconoclasts argued that all those paintings and sculptures of saints, apostles, Christ, and the Virgin Mary were just as bad as the cult statues and paintings of Zeus, Hera, Aphrodite, Athena, and all the other deities of the ancient Greek and Roman pantheons. To iconoclasts, iconophiles are just replacing one form of idolatry with another. And here is the interesting thing. Neither side ever really denied the power of the sacred image. They were really arguing over the source of that power, whether it was divine or demonic. So the iconoclasts won for a while and destroyed or painted over every sacred image they could get their hands on. But later, the iconophiles turned the tables on them and started producing icons and statues again. Of course, the argument never really went away. Centuries later, when Martin Luther told the Catholic Church where to get off and managed to make it stick, there were still a lot of people who didn't approve of icons and relics and devotional imagery, and they really didn't like some of the economic abuses of the Catholic Church. They took their anger out on the churches, destroying the imagery that they associated with the quote-unquote devilish practices of Catholicism. So really, the argument is about whether certain images are hotlines to God or hotlines to the devil. And when we frame it like that, it turns out that this argument has been going on since, oh, forever. In ancient Egypt, and I mean really ancient, as in before the Great Pyramids were built, there is evidence that the big bad guy of Egyptian mythology, Set, wasn't always the villain. In the story that everyone knows, okay, not anymore necessarily, but the story that everyone used to know, Set and Osiris were brothers, and Osiris was the pharaoh of Egypt and its rightful king. Set got jealous. Set challenged Osiris and lost, and challenged and lost. 
and finally got sick of losing and so cheated. He uh, eventually tricked Osiris into getting very dead. It didn't last because Osiris had an amazing wife, who was also the most powerful magician in the world, and she ended up resurrecting him. But for a while, at least, Set was top dog, literally. One of his symbols is pretty much a canine. Now, there are a couple of interesting stone markers, we call them steles, that commemorate various kings of early Egypt. A couple of these steles honor kings from the second dynasty. They started off worshiping Osiris, but apparently they tried to make things work with their newly conquered neighbors by associating themselves with Set too. It started with Peribson. There's a granite funerary stele in London that has the official version of his name, his Serach. It used to have that canine critter of Set on top of it, but apparently folks didn't approve of this idea because it got chiseled off later. That didn't prevent Peribson's successor from trying to make this whole why-can't-we-be-friends thing work. His name was, uh, well, it started off as Kazachem, the one who rises in respect of the power, and he was devoted to Osiris, obviously, because his serach has a falcon on it. The falcon is a symbol for Horus, and there's a Horus the Elder, and a Horus the Younger, and one is Osiris's father, and one is his son. It all gets kind of confusing, but either way, falcons mean Osiris, and Osiris's whole family. Canines mean Set, and his whole family. Anubis, by the way, the jackal-headed god, yeah, he's Set's son. Uh, so anyway, Kazakhem is hanging out and calling himself the one who rises in respect to Osiris, the power. A little while later, however, he changed his name and his Serech, too. His new name was Kazakamwi, which makes his name the one who rises in respect of the two powers. And he topped it off by including falcons and dogs, or whatever they are, on his Serech. Not even that worked, apparently, because he then changed his name yet again. I don't know what it was, but it basically meant the gods are chill now, what's your damage? Uh, by the way, you can read all about this in Gay Robbins' book on Egyptian art. She's brilliant. Uh, the problem, apparently, was that during whatever war had united the Osiris worshippers and the Set worshippers, the pro-Osiris propaganda police had done too good of a job at turning Set into the villain. Set would forever after be the bad guy of Egyptian mythology, no matter how hard pharaohs tried to rehabilitate him. And so we don't even know the story from Set's point of view. We only know he's big and scary and dangerous. Well, duh. So are all the gods if you get on their bad sides. So here's one reason people destroy art. It scares them. The iconoclasts were so scared of the devil talking through pictures and luring gullible people to their doom, they wanted the church to get rid of all pictures, not just the ones of the pagan gods. Ancient Egyptians were scared of the devil too, only their devil was named Set. We see this pattern continue all over the world. When the Spanish and the Portuguese started colonizing the Americas, they rounded up all the treasure and all of the art and all of the records, which were in pictographic form, by the way, and therefore looked rather like bizarre artwork, and they threw it all into the fire. If it burned up, well and good. If it melted, like gold and silver and all that fun stuff, they poured it into blocks and shipped it back home to become money. That's also half the reason why Spain and Portugal ended up having tanking economies because of all of the inflation from all the gold they were bringing in.
Anyway, these people didn't destroy everything just because they were afraid of it. Actually, they had a couple of other reasons, too. First, it was a way of displaying their power. Second, it was a way of wiping out the old traditions so they could impose new ones. When you destroy someone else's creation, you are also, at least symbolically, destroying the ideas that inspired that creation. You're destroying any influence that person or that culture might have on the world. You're basically erasing them. And people do that so that they can write their own version of the story and maybe make it stick. And that's certainly what the Spanish and the Portuguese were trying to do. Almost as soon as they had started cleaning up on the Americas, guess who started coming over on the next ship to try and convert all of those natives? It was the Franciscans, right? So very quickly, we have the destruction of one culture and the imposition of another one. The destruction of the native Mayan culture and the imposition of Catholic Christianity. It never really works. It didn't work for the ancient Egyptians. It didn't work on the Mayans. Uh, we can still see that once upon a time, Set wasn't the villain, and there's a whole lot of really cool evidence for Mayan tradition in Mexican and Mesoamerican Christian art. It's actually really cool. Uh, so there will always be bits and pieces of the art and the culture that you tried to destroy peeking up through the cracks like weeds on the pavement. It's really cool to see where that comes from, and that's actually my favorite part of art history. Those weeds that survive, no matter how many times people mow them, or weed whack them, or roto-rooter them, or whatever they do to try and get rid of them, there will always be some element of the native culture that continues. Now, there are other reasons for destroying art. It isn't always about authoritarian visions of power or xenophobia or just plain bullying. Sometimes art is meant to be ephemeral and the destruction is part of the process. Theater does this all the time. A set is built, a play is produced, and then the set is taken apart again. Parade floats, they do the same thing. My favorite parade is the Rose Parade. I love seeing all the floats and the fantastic designs they come up with every year. They're all made out of material that is guaranteed to decay. There's a relationship between building and destroying, between order and chaos, between life and death. And that temporal cycle is often what is celebrated in these spectacular temporal or time-based art projects. And that is often just as important in art as the idea of permanence and immortality. This has been an episode of Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Thanks for listening. And since this episode has been a little short, here's some ephemeral art for you to enjoy. Owen Douglas and Broken Bottles. One, two, three, four. Got a call the other day from a friend of mine that's far away He told me he wasn't doing so great He said his life was falling down His girl had left, gone out of town And the bottles kept him up too late But all of these things end up in the end You know you'll make it through if you lean on a friend 
It's funny how bottles are metaphors for love and broken hearts. And how the world seems like it's crashing down when the bottles fall apart. I'm walking in shards of broken glass, looking for where I came from. Till I find that field of open grass, and the world has just begun. So I'm walking through this grove of trees, thinking about some words said to me when I was just a poor little boy. Just hold your head high, there ain't no need to cry When all that's broken's just a little toy Cause all of these things end up in the end And you know you'll see the light coming around the bend Cause it's funny how bottles are metaphors for love and broken hearts And how the world seems like it's crashing down when the bottles fall apart Shards of broken glass Looking for where I came from Till I find that field of open grass And a world that's just begun And I know I'll find that world Even though it seems absurd Yeah, I'll keep on trying I'll keep on moving I'll keep on pushing on It's funny how Seems like it's crashing down when the bottles fall apart And I'm walking in shards of broken glass Looking for where I came from Till I find that field of open grass Till I find that field of open grass